He secretly likes Christmas. Thank you, worship team, for that wonderful gift of music for us this morning. You leave him with me long enough, and I will rub off on him. I trust him. Next year, he might even be singing in his office. He still doesn't know who Bing Crosby is, though. I got work to do. He was. Philippians chapter 2 this morning. Merry Christmas to you. We have been... We have been looking at Philippians chapter 2, and we have been looking at specifically the significance of the incarnation, the coming to earth, the taking on flesh of Jesus. And uh, we have called this emptied to exalted. I came across this quote by Augustine, and he said this about this, Christ emptied himself not by losing what he was, but by taking to him what he was not. I like that. Not by losing what he was. He he didn't lose or, or give up the fact that he was God, but he emptied himself by taking on what he was not, and that is human flesh, human form. And and that should just, as I have said over and over with a great theological term, that should just blow us away. That really should just blow us away. That God would come in the flesh. And as we have looked at this, we have seen in Philippians chapter 2 that Paul uses God coming in the flesh for believers, and he says this, you need to adopt this kind of thinking. This is the kind of thinking that you need to have. This is the kind of humility you need to have. This is the attitude you need to have. And then last week, we, we saw that we cannot completely see the importance of Christ coming in the flesh without also expanding our view to see him dying on the cross. Someone has put it this way, how far does the Lord go to make us his own? How far does the Lord go to obey the Father and bring him glory? You don't have to look any farther than to look down at the manger and then to look up at the cross and then you'll know how far he'll go. And there's your answer. And so this morning we come one last time to this passage because even as I was listening to them, and Pastor Andy pointed this out to me this morning, the song that they just sang, which is a beautiful song, it doesn't resolve the story completely. It talked about Christ coming as a baby. It talked about the fact that he's the Savior of the world. But the story doesn't end there. The story doesn't end there. And so this morning, we want to get to the end of the story. We want to get to the final chapter. I'd invite you to one last time join me in Philippians chapter 2 this morning. We're going to read again this wonderful passage of Scripture, verses 5 through 11. And our focus this morning will be on verses 9 through 11. Philippians 2, verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant... And being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord 
to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray this morning. Father, we thank you this morning for the wonderful truths that we have sung. We thank you for the wonderful truths that we find here in in this text of Scripture this morning, that Christ entered our world, that God is with us, and that we get to remember and celebrate that every Christmas season. But Father, we would be missing the whole point if we only celebrated the birth of Christ without looking to the cross of Christ and without looking to the glory of Christ that we're going to see this morning in this text. So Spirit, I pray that you would come, that you would work in our hearts this morning. Because what we see in this passage is a truth for every one of us. One day, whether or not we've done it yet, one day we will bow before the King of kings and Lord of lords and we will with our mouths confess him as King and Lord. And so today I pray that that would be a hopeful thing for us. I pray that that would be a thing that gives us great excitement and not dread, I ask. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning, I want to give you my outline And it's four R's because I'm simple-minded. I need something to keep my mind on task here. First thing we're going to see is the response of the Father to the emptying of Christ. We're going to see how the Father responds to that. Secondly, we're going to look at the royal title that's given to Christ. Thirdly, we're going to see the response that, that every intelligent being is going to have to the Lordship of Christ. And then last, we're going to see the result of Christ's exaltation. So let's begin by looking at the response of God the Father to to Christ's obedience and the emptying of himself. So for the last two weeks, we have seen, if you will, this spiral downward of Christ as he further and further lowers himself. And then it's as if the the whole text flips in verse 9 with one word, therefore. The the New American Standard, I think, does a better job with, with with the translation of this, and it says, for this reason... Or because of this, because of everything that we have seen above, the, above verse 9, the fact that Christ was in the form of God, and he didn't grasp onto that and hold onto that, but he willingly laid that aside. The fact that, that he came and emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. The Lord of all creation takes on the form of the servant. Because of that, and because he becomes obedient to death and across death, Here's how God responds to that. This shouldn't surprise us because we'll find this principle elsewhere in the scripture. The scripture says this, if you will humble yourself before the Lord, he'll do what? He'll lift you up. And there's been no greater humiliation than the humiliation of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, in leaving heaven and coming to this earth and and taking on the form of a man and giving up his life so that you and I might have salvation And what does God do? Well, look at verse 9 with me. God has highly exalted him. You can't view Christmas properly unless you see it from the beginning to the end. And the beginning to the end is this. Christ lowers himself to come to this earth. He lowers himself even further to die on a cross. And God lifts him up. And when God lifts him up, he lifts him to a place that no other being will ever be lifted to. These ideas are are just 
like fused together in the scripture. You can't look at the humiliation of Christ. You can't look at the death of Christ with also considering the exaltation of Christ. You can't look at Jesus in the manger without seeing him as Lord of lords and King of kings and as the exalted one. You can't separate the two. Because, because the fact that he came and that he did die, he, Christ was raised up. And think about the ways that God raised him up. First and foremost, he raised him up by bringing him back from the dead, did he not? The resurrection is the first part of this. Then the ascension, where he, where he leaves this earth and he joins God in heaven. And then the word tells us this, that God places him at his right hand. Hebrews 1.3 points us to that, where, where he is coronated as king in, in the, court, the, the courtroom of heaven, celebrates Jesus as king, and he is placed at God's right hand, the seat of authority, the seat of judgment, the seat where everyone must one day give an account. But it doesn't just stop there. He's given a name. And we'll get to that. He's given a name. Not only is he given a place, but he's given a name. But I want to think about that place where he sits for a second. Because it's a place that whether or not you realize it right now, it is a place that you and I will have to appear before. I want you just to think about that. We didn't get to be in Bethlehem. We didn't get to see Jesus' birth. We, we have ideas in our heads, and, and probably all of them are wrong, but that's okay. But we have ideas in our heads about what the birth was like. We have ideas in our heads of what it was like to see Christ crucified. But I can tell you this as sure as I am standing here today, you will not have to wonder what the throne of heaven looks like because you have an appointment with the God of this universe, and you have an appointment with the Lord of Lords at his throne. We know from the Word of God that for the child of God, the one who's put his faith and trust in God, it's a throne where he will receive rewards. It's a throne where he or she will be evaluated. If you're the child of God here this morning, does that just kind of make you just a little nervous? It should. It should. But it shouldn't make you totally nervous paralyzed with fear because we also know that elsewhere in the word of God that throne is referred to as a throne of grace and we are invited in fact we are encouraged in the word of God to come to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and help in our time of trouble it's the throne where where Christ sits as king of kings and lord of lords and he makes intercession for us to his father but it's also a place of judgment it's a place where the book of Revelation and the prophets in the Old Testament tell us this. It's a place where Christ will judge the nations. How many of you get bothered by things that you see in the world today? I've got good news for you. One day, all of the crooked leaders in our world, including in our own country, and there's plenty of them, will have to give an account at the, at the throne of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We should stop worrying about it and just put it in the hands of our God, shouldn't we? 
Every one of his followers will appear, but also the nations will appear before him. And so God, in response to the emptying of Christ, he lifts him up to a place that no one else will ever be lifted to. Secondly, I want you to see that Christ is given a royal title. Christ is given a royal title. If you are the King of kings and Lord of lords, you should have a title befitting that, shouldn't you? He says here in verse 9 that the name is above every name, but he doesn't tell us what the name is, does he? It's like, okay. And, and then it goes on, it says, so that at the name of Jesus, and you're like, wait a minute, that's not a new name, is it? We know that name, right? So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is, and what's the next word in your Bibles, church? Lord. Lord. This is the title that's given to Jesus. This is, this is the name that's above all names. And, and, and what that means is, and I want you to all look up here. I want you to, I want you to understand that this morning. Some of you kids are so think, focused on your Christmas presents this morning. I get that. It's coming, okay? Some of you parents are like, I still got shopping to do, PD. Let's get out of here. Can we hurry this up? I want you to stop and think about this, what it means that Jesus Christ is Lord. What that means is, is that he is over all. There's no one above him. If you want to put it in a vernacular that one of our presidents used, where does the buck stop? The buck stops at the throne of Jesus. There's no one higher. He's over all. Not only that, he's the owner of all. When you are the highest, guess what? You own everything underneath you. He owns it all. That includes your life right now. That includes your house. That includes your car. That includes your children. That includes the clothes that you're wearing. That includes all the presents that are or aren't under your tree right now. He's the owner of all. Not only that, he has authority over all. He has authority over all. Stop and let that sink in for a second. The one who gave up all of the, all of the things that it was to be God, who, who just laid that aside, didn't stop being God, but he just laid aside all of the things, came to this earth, was born very humbly, as a baby, he owns it all. He owns it all. You might think Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos owns it all. And they think they own it all. I got news for them. They own nothing. Christ owns it all. He's the owner of it all, and he has authority over it all, and on top of it all, he is sovereign over all. He calls the shots. We shouldn't be surprised by this title, because if we were just to look at the Christmas story in Luke chapter 2 and verse 11... We're told there by the angel as it renounces it to the shepherds, and unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ, fill in the blanks, the Lord. 
Now, this had significance for those shepherds, a significance that you and I may not be able to latch onto, because if we had been there during this time, we would have been like, wait a minute, I know, I know my prophets, and I know the law, I know the Old Testament, and Lord is a title that has only been given up until this time to God the Father, the Lord of the universe. This is a title that's only been used for Him. In fact, when you find Lord in the Old Testament, it is always referring to God the Father. And now, this title is freely given by God to His Son, Christ, and it points us to the future. Turn with me to the book of Revelation. I want you to see this for yourself. I've used this term several times this morning, but I want you to see where it comes from. Revelation chapter 19 this morning. John here is writing the things that are about to take place, <laughs> that are going to happen in, in the future. He's writing about things that, that are going to happen, that are going to happen in time even past ours right now. And he talks about somebody coming from heaven in chapter 19 and verse 11 on a white horse. And the one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. He has crowns all over his head which, which should imply something to us. If you have all the crowns, are you in charge? Church, if you have all the crowns, are you in charge? Yes, you are. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself, and he's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses, and from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which he will strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, and what is it? King of kings and Lord of lords. God bestows on Jesus the name that's above all names, the name that to you and I, we say it all the time, and sometimes we use it almost euphemistically like Lord Almighty. Well, if we really knew what that was, we probably would not be so quick to let that roll off our tongue. And I want you to see something here. And I wanted to take you to Revelation 19 just to, to point something out to us this morning. Just as sure as Christ came in the flesh the first time, the fact that he came as a baby and he, and he lived a perfect life and laid down his life for us, the fact that he did that and that we can point back to it, it's a matter of historical record, should give us complete confidence that he will return again in the flesh. It points to a glorious return, and it ought to get our attention the same way that His first coming gets our attention. Think about those wise men that I read about in Matthew chapter 2 this morning. Did it get their attention, the coming of the king? They were, they were one of the very few in the world that understood what was going on. But it so riveted their attention that, that they left where they lived and they traveled probably for months to come and find this king above all kings. But thirdly, I want you to see that not only is Christ given a royal title, 
there is an absolute required response to the lordship of Jesus. How many of you have been guilty of saying something like this? Well, that guy's not my governor or he's not my president. Come on, who's been guilty of saying that? You can't say that about King Jesus. Guess what? Even if you say it, it's not true. He is your king. He is your Lord. And I want you to see the required response that Paul details for us here. Look at verse 10. So that at the name of Jesus, first, every knee will bow. The language here literally puts it this way. Christ is given the name above all names, Lord, so that every knee will bow. The reason that God gives him this name is because God wants every knee to bow at the throne of King Jesus. Keep your finger here and go back with me to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 45. Isaiah prophesied about this. He prophesied a lot about the Messiah. And in Isaiah 45, Isaiah writes this. Verse 21. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And okay, we're in the Old Testament. Who's the Lord referring to here? God the Father. And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn from my mouth, has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. Hundreds of years before Christ came. Isaiah prophesied about what Paul writes here in Philippians chapter 2. Notice the universality of this. How many knees are going to bow before the throne of Jesus? Does that include your knee? It does. Your knee will bow before him as King of kings and Lord of lords. In case we don't get it, Paul goes on to tell us just how many people that is, okay? Verse 10, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. What's he saying there? All the intelligent beings that are in heaven will bow before Jesus and own him as Lord. The redeemed in heaven will bow before him. We see this beautifully pictured for us in Revelations chapter 4 and 5, do we not? Where Christ is pictured as the lamb who comes into the throne room of heaven. And as soon as he does, the whole throng of heaven breaks out in this chorus that says, Worthy is the lamb. And they fall before him. And you see this picture of the elders there throwing their crowns at his feet. says those on the earth. This speaks to every person who has ever walked on this earth. And specifically, at the time of his appearing, those who are on the earth 
There will come a time, whether or not they choose it or not, they will be forced to bow. They will have no choice but to bow before him. But I want you to see this this morning as well. That last phrase in verse 10, and under the earth. Do you realize that there's coming a time that Satan himself will have to acknowledge that Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords? I'm pretty sure he knows it. He knows the Bible pretty well, probably better than most of us. He knows it's coming. But friend, this morning, take hope in this. There's coming a day when even Satan himself will be submitted completely and forced to confess Jesus as Lord. You know, there's not one intelligent being that will not bow before Christ as Lord, and there is not one intelligent being that will also do a second response. They will, with their mouths, confess Him as Lord. You see, whether or not we say it, and I think sometimes we're, say, we're afraid to say it. You ever been afraid to say something because you're afraid it might come true? Like, don't say that. Like, 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 don't even think that. And I think a lot of mankind is that way. And, and, whether or not, and whether or not we say it right now doesn't change the fact that one day we will confess that He is Lord. How much better to do what Romans 10.9 says, if you will confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, what does it say, church? You will be what? You'll be saved. You see, there is an opportunity for every one of us, for every person in this room right now, to willingly bow and, and not be forced into submission, but to willingly bow, confess Him as Lord, and to receive grace. But for those who don't, there will come a time when they will unwillingly have to bow the knee. But let's understand what it means to bow the knee to Jesus. What it means is that you have to humble yourself. It's humbling to bow. Why is it that monarchs throughout all the ages required their subjects and the people they defeated to bow before them? Because they understand how humbling it is. The very act of bowing and getting on one's knees indicates I'm lower than you. Well, I'm not right now. I'm on a platform. But you understand what I'm saying? It indicates in a very real way, you're above me. It's humbling. Secondly, it's an admission. And it's an admission that some of us don't want to make. And the admission is this, you are Lord and I am not. Oh, how we want to believe that we're Lord of our own fate. Oh, how we want to cling to that. Oh, how we want to believe that, that I can control the world around me.
No, to bow and, and, to, and, to, and to get on your knees and confess Him as Lord is to humble yourself. It's humbling. It admits that you're not Lord. It admits that you're not sovereign over all. And it says this, I need help. I'm a man. The one thing I don't ever ask for is help. Anybody else in here like that? We're men, right? We don't ask for help. You know, when I was a young child, the Bible says it takes the faith of a child, doesn't it? When I was a young child, I realized I needed help. And I realized that I needed to bow before Jesus as king and confess him as Lord because, because I needed help. I want you to see the final thing here. I want you to see the final result of what happens here. Verse 11, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The final result of all of this is, is that God gets glorified. God's glorified. You see this? Declaring Jesus as Lord is the ultimate way to give God glory. I used to wrestle with this. I, I can remember years ago teaching teens about this. I understood that we were here to bring glory to God. That, I understand that, but they would ask me questions like, well, what does it mean to bring glory to God? Anybody else wrestled with that? What does it mean to bring glory to God? Well, duh, Dan, it's right here. The greatest way to bring glory to God is to confess His Son as Lord. And until you and I confess Him as Lord, we are doing anything but bringing the Father glory. You see, the sending of Christ... God in the flesh is a huge deal from our perspective, but it's just a very small part of the immense picture that God is painting with, with what He is doing. And if you and I were to title the picture, we would call it this, God's glory. And so I ask you this Christmas Eve, are you seeing, are you really seeing what God is doing here? And I realize from our perspective, we only see it dimly. But do, you, but do you see what God is doing here? He is bringing glory to himself by first sending Christ as a baby, by, by having him die, by, by as he hung on the cross, pouring out his wrath on him. He is bringing glory to himself. And what he wants from his creation is for you and I to willingly bow before him and declare him as Lord. Here's a question for you. Is he your Lord? Yeah, he is. Whether or not you claim him as Lord, he is your Lord. The real question is this this morning. Have you confessed him as Lord? It's not, is he your Lord? The answer to that is yes. The real question is, have you confessed him as your Lord. How do I know if I've confessed Him as Lord? 
Well, I made a profession of faith when I was seven years old. Well, that's a good start. But don't confess him as Lord if you're not serving him as the sovereign Lord. Don't confess him as Lord unless you're really serving him as Lord. You see, there's a difference between saying he's Lord and actually orienting your life to the fact that he is Lord. And so, I ask you, are you ready for his return? Are you ready for it? Are you looking for it? Are you like the wise men? You're like, where's the star? Just show me the star. I'm saddled up. I'm ready to go. That's what Christmas is all about. It's about Christ coming in the flesh, yes. But it's about the fact that he emptied himself for us so that God might receive the ultimate glory. Father, what an amazing truth that Christ is overall. And whether or not we acknowledge it this morning, whether or not we admit that He's overall, He truly is overall. And so we praise you, Jesus, the one who emptied yourself to come and die a cross death for us. We praise you, Jesus. And we pray that this Christmas that our focus wouldn't just be on the manger, but that it would be on the manger to the cross, to the throne. May we see it all, the story from beginning to end, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.